All right, I'll invite you to take your Bibles, and if you would, turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1 in your Bibles. We are going to be spending some time in Galatians and some time in Romans as it relates to this topical series that we began last week, Christians and the Law. Last week, uh, and remember this is precipitated from a, a passage that we are about to get to in First Timothy, our new series, First Timothy 1 verses 8 through 11, where Paul will speak toward the function of the law. And he says the law is good if you use it lawfully. And so we see this, the, this instruction on how to use the law lawfully. And as I began meditating on, on how to preach that passage, uh, I recognized that it would be insufficient just to preach on that one point that I really wanted to give you an overarching understanding of our relationship to the law. And it will finish with using the law lawfully. And that will come in a little while. The series will be six weeks long. This is week two. And then we'll have four more weeks after our, our um, uh, picnic next week where we focus in on this concept. So last time together, uh, we spent our time focusing upon the history of the controversy in the early church as it relates directly to the law. Men were being sent out throughout the Roman Empire from Judea with the belief that a man must be circumcised in order to be saved. In the church at Jerusalem, uh, there was a sect of believing Jews, the Bible says, who were teaching that born-again believers must not only be circumcised, but must also submit themselves unto the law. And as we uh, compare and contrast with Galatians, we see that Paul also speaks of those who were unbelievers who had crept into the church, uh, that idea that Jude warns of, those that creep in unawares, and who sought to bind the church back under the yoke of the law. And uh, Paul um, was in, Paul and Barnabas, they were in Galatia at the time that they found these men who were preaching that you must be circumcised to be saved. This concerns, concerned them deeply, particularly finding out that these were brethren that were sent out from the church at Jerusalem. And so they made their way down to Jerusalem where they hashed out this controversy among the brethren. That began the debate, and it was settled by the testimony both of Peter and of Paul, who both reflected that the Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit of God apart from any consideration of the law. Then James, the chief elder of the church at Jerusalem, settled upon the conviction that the Gentiles should not be placed under any burden as it related to the law, with the exception of four requests, two moral and two ceremonial. Morally, that they would abstain from idolatry and fornication, and ceremonially, that they would not eat animals that were strangled, or that they would not eat animals in which the blood had not been drained. And all four of those requests were specifically cited in relation to the testimony of the church among the Jewish people that were in their regions. So this was sent throughout the Roman Empire. Historically, the next book that we would look at then and that we're going to go to as we will today is Galatians. Likely written uh, sometime not too long after all of these uh, controversies had been settled. Written to that region where the controversy began, right, where Paul and Barnabas were, when they got into this controversy with those Judaizing believers, with those legalizers, 
And of course, Paul is thus reporting back to those churches and speaking not just now with the authority of Christ as the apostle to the Gentiles, but in unity with the church as it relates to the law. And we're going to hit Galatians today as we speak of this relationship or or the lack of relationship as the scriptures present it between the law and eternal justification. So remember, last week was history. This week we speak of the law and justification. Over the next four weeks, first we're going to talk about the law on in general terms as it relates to believers, those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. What is our relationship if we take salvation out of it to the law? We'll talk about that next. Then after that, we're going to talk about the, the value of the law. The, the law, as Hebrews tells us, it was a shadow of things to come. Paul says the law is not evil, Right? He says it's holy and it's right and it's good. So then it, uh, wh- where's our relationship as it relates to, to those teachings? And then we're going to talk about the heightened element of accountability under the Spirit. And then finally, we'll get into 1 Timothy 1 and we'll talk about the proper use of the law in this age. So that's where we're going. That's, that's the intent. I do encourage you. I have preached through the book of Galatians. It's a long time ago. The audio quality on the recording is not that great uh, as it was before we had some of the equipment we have now. I don't have any audio or video recordings of it. This was before our YouTube days. However, uh, they are online. And if you want a, a, a very full presentation of these concepts, particularly as it relates to Galatians, because I'm going to be breezing over a lot, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that series. It's, of course, on the website. You can subscribe to our podcast, and it will be on there as well. And that will give you a little bit more as it relates to these things. So we're going to go to Galatians. We're going to talk through these things. But really, Galatians is not our primary source on this concept of the law and justification. I'd say Galatians speaks far more towards the law and sanctification. Our primary source for the, the, this understanding will actually be the book of Romans. So we'll be spending time there as well. Just before getting going, uh, um, we, I remind you that this is going to be in survey fashion, so we're not going to dig into the nitty-gritty of all of the ins and outs of meaning to that end. There might be a few questions you have. Feel free to ask me those in another forum. Uh, again, if it's in Galatians, feel free to listen to my Galatians series, um, and we will try to make sure that everyone ha- has a good understanding of these things. So the focus of the book of Galatians is the insufficiency of the law, either unto eternal salvation or unto personal sanctification. In chapters 1 and 2, we see a heavy focus on the failure of the law to save your soul. Galatians chapters 3 through 6, we see focus primarily on the the, the inability of the law to establish your life under grace. Naturally, then, today we're going to focus on chapters 1 and 2, and we'll get to the other chapters as we continue through our series. So you're there in Galatians chapter 1. I am going to be skipping verses, but we begin in verses 6 and 7. Paul writes this. He says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. So Paul establishes the theme of the book here in verses 6 and 7, that the churches of the region, this would be Galatia, uh, Lystra, Iconia, Derby, those, those places where Paul went in that first missionary journey, that they had been diverted from the message of the true gospel, which is a message of both grace-filled justification and sanctification. Do take note that as the Bible speaks of the gospel, when we say share the gospel, we are generally talking about the message of salvation by grace 
grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. But as we see the concept of the gospel used in the New Testament, the gospel is not just something that we receive, it is something in which we live, right? So the gospel actually does encompass more than just the message that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day. That is, that, that, that's the initiation into the gospel. But then as we continue into the gospel... We also see the, 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 this concept of the gospel being the manner in which the Christian lives his life, this new way of grace-filled living. And so they had been diverted from this message of the truth of the gospel into a message of legalization, of a necessity to submit to the law of Moses, uh, the very controversy that had inspired the Jerusalem council that we studied last week in Acts 15. And Paul then continues through this chapter, reminding the church that as pertaining to the law, Paul was once a tremendous example of the law and one of the true authorities of the law of Moses on this earth. So he says in verses 13 and 14, For ye heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. So uh, Paul says here, I have the credentials to speak as pertaining to the law of Moses. If there was a guy from the Gentile world, that God had called out to become an apostle to the Gentiles, it would be very difficult for him to, to speak in a way that could convince Jews anything as it pertained to the law, right? Because he was never under the law. He has no appreciation for the law. But when we see a man like Paul, a man who sat at the feet of Gamaliel, a man who, he says, was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, as he testifies of himself, a man who was exceedingly zealous above all of those in his own nation, above Many, his equals, in his own nation, he says, being exceedingly zealous for the traditions of his father. Now he's the one that's telling us these things. A man that was in it. A man that understands it. A man that lived it. A man that was zealous toward it. He knows the law. He lived under it. He, was, he observed it. He was zealous toward it both to the law and, he says here, to the traditions of Israel. Now, in the remainder of chapter 1, Paul shares his testimony of conversion and his testimony of personal learning as it regards the gospel of grace under Jesus Christ himself. He testifies that no man taught him, but that Jesus himself taught him these things. Once again, giving the, the, the folks in Galatia the foundation of his authority to speak on this. He's not just whistling in the wind. He's not just some guy that has ideas. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. He was taught these things by Christ himself, who is the cornerstone of our faith. And he has come out of this system himself. So he can see very clearly what's going on. That's the idea here that Paul establishes in chapter 1. All of it foundational so that we can read beginning, uh, or so that we can read in chapter 2, beginning with, with the history that we considered last week. Paul says this, Then 14 years, chapter 2, verse 1, after I went up again, uh, 14 years after, excuse me, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to them 
which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who is with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So Paul describes thus going down to Jerusalem, right? He, going to this council that we sp- studied last week in, in Acts chapter 15. He says it took place 14 years after Paul had first been in the church when he had first presented himself to the church. He says that he presented himself to the church after three years, three years after his salvation. So 17 years after Paul was saved, he ends up back uh, there at Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. And he took Barnabas and he specifically took Titus because Titus had not been compelled to be circumcised. We recall when we began our study in 1 Timothy that Timothy had, com- had decided, Paul had thought it right, and Timothy chose thus to get circumcised after he got saved in order that he might reach the Jewish populations better. But Titus had not been compelled to be circumcised. And so Paul specifically brought him to show, him, to show the council a man in whom the Spirit of God was, a man who was approved unto ministry, a man who knew the things of the Word of God. As we have a book written to Titus, we know that he was an elder, a minister, yet simultaneously was uncircumcised. Can you be saved without being circumcised? Well, yes, because there are people who are uncircumcised who are saved, right? And that was the idea here. And Paul specifically says that there were those who were false brethren. Now, remember last week, uh, Acts 15 spoke of Pharisees that had believed. And so we, we see this division between some Pharisees who had believed and then Paul speaking of these false brethren who were brought in unawares. So they are not believers. They came in to spy out the liberty that was in Christ, and then they came in to, uh, to, to effectively sabotage the church and to seek to bring the church back under what Paul says is bondage. Right? Peter talked about the law last week as the yoke which our fathers could not bear, so why should we compel others to bear it? Paul says here that these brethren who were brought in unawares, these false brethren, sought to bring the church back under bondage. Notice the, the language that he's using here and the severity with which he approaches this topic. So they communicated the gospel. They preached that they preached unto the Gentiles, gospel of grace alone, uh, among those of reputation. That's what we read about last week. The leaders of the church, Paul brought up this controversy. He did not bring it up in a way that, that sought to uh, openly air his grievances to the whole of the church. He only brought it to the elders. He made sure that this was not going to cause uh, deep disunity. And then, of course, they got this thing Settled. We continue in verses 6 through 10. But of these who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no man's person. For they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me, but contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, that would be Peter, right? And John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship 
that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. So Paul then speaks of influential people in the church. He talks about false brethren. And then he says those who were somewhat. He says they, they, they were something. They were something in the church. Those who were influential. He says, now it doesn't matter to me because God accepts no man's person. They, uh, it doesn't matter who a person is, the truth is not more or less truthful because of the mouth out of which it enters or out of which it exits. God does not need authority or honor or wealth to validate himself. He says these men were somewhat, they were something in the church, but that didn't necessarily make them right. And he says, in fact, that they added nothing to me. They added nothing to my understanding of the gospel through our debates. He says they added nothing to me as it related to how I should relate myself to, to, to the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, he said, I came out understanding that I was doing things right as it related to the way that I was preaching the gospel. And James, Cephas, or Peter, and John quickly identified this as well. They quickly recognized it was the church of Antioch that had sent Paul and Barnabas out to the Gentiles, right? Not the church at Jerusalem. But they quickly recognized that Paul and Barnabas had been commissioned for this purpose. They extended to them the right hand of fellowship, and they acknowledged that it would be, the, that it would be Paul and Barnabas that would go out to the heathen and that would preach this gospel to them while they, Peter, James, and John would primarily focus in on the circumcision, the place where, where, where they had been quite clearly called of God. And so, of course, we, we started all this last week with, with one notable difference. Notice what Paul tells the churches of Galatia they charged him with. Remember, last week we read, we read in Acts chapter 15 that they charged, that they asked the, the churches to, as we talked about already, do two moral things and two ceremonial things. Avoid idolatry, avoid fornication, avoid things strangled, and avoid, things, uh, avoid animals with the blood. Notice Paul does not mention any of those here in Galatians. And then when we, when we carry over to the letter that was written, and, and that's quoted in the book of Acts, it doesn't explicitly say uh, idolatry. It says meat offered unto idols, Right? So he may actually only have three ceremonially and, and one moral. Either way, however, what we find here is that Paul mentions none of those. He says, the only thing that they ask me that, I, that we should explicitly remember is to remember the poor. Now, the difference between these accounts is not difficult to reconcile. James' requests were just that. They were requests. They were not requirements. This is important to understand. They were not requests as it related to the church's relationship with Jesus Christ. They were requests as it related to the church's relationship to whom? To the Jews, right? That's explicitly what James said, that there are people who every week go into the synagogue and read Moses. Therefore, we are requesting of you that you avoid these things that could be of a negative testimony in you reaching the Jewish people with the gospel of Christ. That's not Paul's concern here. Paul's concern here is the gospel, is the law and grace. So he's not going to bring those things up here. He's not talking about their testimony among, among the Jews. He's talking about how to relate to Christ properly here. So he only brings up one, one which is not even recorded in the book of Acts, that they care for the poor. And Paul says, of course, I'm going to do this. This is sound doctrine, right? This is sound doctrine. And so... Um, 
he is going to do these things. And as we mentioned last week, as it relates to those ceremonial things, Paul brings them up specifically, 1 Corinthians 8, Romans 14, and we'll talk about those things in the weeks to come. So James, the one speaking in Acts 15, when he wrote his epistle, he said, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. That's pure religion. Those things, it would seem, are what James exhorted unto Paul and Barnabas as well. Paul says, of course, we're going to preach those things because that is sound doctrine. We continue in verses 11 through 16 of Galatians 2. Paul continues with a historical account here. He says, but when Peter was come to Antioch, remember that's where Paul and Barnabas had been sent from, and that this letter went to Antioch and then from there was filtered out throughout the, the Roman world. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that, certain came from James. He did eat with the Gentiles, but when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, a public rebuke here, if thou being a Jew livest after the manner of Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So Paul speaks of a time when Peter went with them unto Antioch. <clears throat> we don't know exactly when this is. We don't know if this is... We, we know that according to the book of Acts, it was not Peter that was sent to Antioch with this letter. Right? It was a man named Judas and it was a man named Silas. And so it was not necessarily at that time, but at some point, Peter had been with Paul in Antioch. And as would have been customary among the Gentiles, Peter was more than happy to, to eat with the Gentile believers, to uh, um, spend time with them. But then at some point, James sent a group of Jewish believers from Jerusalem to Antioch. And when they got there, these Jews knowingly and intentionally separated themselves off from the Gentile believers and would not eat with them, would not associate with them, because in doing so, they would defile the law, right? And so Peter actually ended up separating himself as well from the Gentiles whom he had previously eaten on any number of occasions and sat with the Jews. And other Jewish believers in Antioch did the same, so much so that even Barnabas... Paul's companion was taken away in their dissimulation, was taken away in this problem. And the problem is not that the Jews were not allowed to eat alone. The problem was what it affirmed. What it affirmed in the hearts of the Jewish believers who had come up from Jerusalem and who refused to eat with the Gentile believers. Paul says this was a major problem. And so he speaks up and he publicly rebukes Peter for it, asking them why they would compel the Gentiles to act like Jews in order to be around them. Why they would ask the Gentiles to fall under the yoke of the law in any way, shape, or form, particularly, perhaps circumcision here doesn't say, 
It, but to fall under the law if they were going to enjoy fellowship with Jewish believers. And this one they all knew full well that a man was not justified by the law. Paul says, even we who are Jews, we were not justified by the law. Even if we keep the law, we know full well that we are not justified by the law. We are justified by the faith of Christ. And if that is how we were saved as Jews, and if that is how they were saved as Gentiles, and if we're all saved, then what are you doing, Peter? This is not teaching a good lesson. This is dangerous stuff. This is affirming something that is wrong. Paul makes it clear, they who have believed are not more made perfect by the law than anyone else. That faith is the standard. The law can justify no man. So Paul would continue then as we finish up our survey of Galatians chapter 2 in verse 17. But what if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners? Is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. Let me park on this verse for a minute. Instead of reading the whole passage, which I intended to do, but I want you to be able to see this as we talk through it. Paul says, or am I wrong here, Peter? Is it actually that it is sin for you to associate with the Gentiles even though Jesus has commanded you to do it? Is it actually that even though Jesus has regenerated the, the Gentile world by grace through faith, just as he has regenerated Jews by grace through faith, is it actually that Jesus is the minister of sin? That Jesus is asking you to do something that he deems sinful in that you are called by the vision that Peter had by sound doctrine to associate with Gentiles, but you're also called to yoke yourself to the law. You can't have it both ways, Peter. Either you're in the wrong or Jesus is the minister of sin. Jesus is asking you to do something that is contrary to the law and thus asking you to sin. But of course we know that's not true, right? We'll explain that more in a minute. Let's continue. He says, for if I build again, verse 18, the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. It's not Jesus that's the minister of sin. If I build again the things which I destroyed, I'm the transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. So Paul asks in verse 17, as we said, if we seek to be justified by Christ and not by the law, are we then found sinners because we're no longer keeping the law claiming to be justified by Christ, yet simultaneously we're bound to the law because we're Jews. Then Jesus is the minister of sin. That's that hypothetical that Jesus introduces here. Now, the only other option is that Peter is wrong in affirming. Now, he's not calling the Gentiles unclean. He sat with them. But by separating himself when these other Jews got there, he is affirming something. He is affirming that they are unclean. As those Jews that he's going to sit with call unclean what Jesus has already called clean, the Gentile believers. 
And so he says, Peter, you're in the wrong here. And if there is, if Jesus isn't a minister of sin, then following Jesus' teaching leads us unto God, not unto sin. And if Jesus' teaching leads us unto God, then to oppose Jesus' teaching must, by default, lead us into sin. And if there's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile, and we established, as we did historically last week and through Galatians chapter 2 this week, through Peter's vision of the sheet as he interacted with Cornelius, that there is no clean or unclean as it relates to people, then Peter is wholly in the wrong in separating himself from a Gentile believer because that Gentile believer is not a Jew, does not keep the law. So Paul says, thus Peter was building again the thing which he had destroyed. He was reaffirming something which had already been torn down and he makes himself a transgressor. When we build again a loyalty to the things which God has destroyed, when we validate what God has invalidated, when we put barriers where God has not, we make ourselves a transgressor. And on this principle, Paul says that he is dead to the law. He says, through the law, I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I may live unto Christ. Not because he does not see value in it, not because he does not appreciate it, not because uh, there, is, there, there is nothing in the law that reflects the doctrines of sound doctrine. Again, we'll talk about that in weeks to come. Please don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that everything that the law says is bad or anything of the sort. Anything of the sort. Please don't, 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 don't get that from me. That's not what we're saying. That's not what Paul is saying. But what we are saying, what Paul is saying here, is that the reason why we would do anything that we do cannot be rooted in the law, but rather in the faith of Christ. He is going where Christ goes. He lives his life not in the law, but by the faith of the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. See, he is crucified with Christ. It is Christ that lives in him. This is the contrast that Paul is trying to paint. We're not talking about any individual action or inaction. We are talking about the motivation. Do I live under a yoke of a burden of the law or do I live under the freedom and the liberty of Christ? He says, I will not, I do not frustrate the grace of God. If righteousness comes by the law, he says, Christ is dead in vain. He says, I refuse to imply, I refuse to affirm through my actions that any righteousness may be earned through the law. And this ends Galatians chapter 2. Uh, what we find then in this chapter specifically is that a man is not justified by the law, but by grace. And that's our focus this week. Justification, the law and justification. That these two are mutually exclusive. That when any man stands before God, no matter who he is, when he lived, no man will ever be able to stand before God and hope in their capacity, in their success in keeping any element of even the righteousness of God's character, but only in the grace of God that has been bestowed upon them. Now, as it relates to Galatians, Paul then begins in the next chapter uh, strongly focusing not on justification, but on sanctification. We will talk about that in the weeks to come. But for this week, at this point, I want to transition to a, a general outline through the book of Romans. And as we walk through Romans in survey fashion, we're going to see in Romans chapter 2 that the insufficiency of self-righteousness. 
And that is where the law becomes weak. The law is not a bad thing, was never a bad thing. But the law was weak because we are insufficient. Romans 3, we're going to see the universal condemnation of sin by the law. That what the law is really, really good at is making me feel really, really guilty. That's what the law is really good at, is, is highlighting, emphasizing, magnifying my own condemnation, my own inability, my personal self, uh, uh, s- insufficiency of self-righteousness. And then in Romans 4 and 5, the reality of justification by grace alone without the law. So I'll invite you again, if you'd like, to follow along in your Bibles to turn to Romans chapter 2. It will, of course, the, the, the passages of note will be on the screen. Uh, that being said, um, I will be skipping around. So if you would like to fill in the gaps in your mind in any way, um, be, be, uh, uh, may it behoove you to turn with me. And the first thing that we're going to see, as I mentioned in Romans chapter 2, is the failure of self-righteousness, the failure of self-righteousness. Paul says this as he speaks to the church at Rome, verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, of course, he, he had a list of sins in Romans chapter 1 that, that he's speaking of there, and that we have no right to judge because we do the same. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness, and in penitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile, but glory and honor, or glory, honor and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, for there is no respect of persons with God. So Paul highlights the futility of self-righteousness here, that whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, there is no respecter of persons with God, that, that those who do unrighteousness must face the consequences of unrighteousness. Anytime I might look out beyond myself to judge a moral standing of another, I also condemn myself for I have done the same. I may not be lying right now, but if I look out at another and say, oh, that liar, well, I have lied. I have done the same. That man will be judged by God as to should I and will I. Every time, the, the old adage goes that when one finger is pointing out, I've got three fingers pointing back at me, right? That concept is what is in play here. If I call a man unrighteous for adultery, I thus call myself an adulterer. If I call uh, an unrighteous man, if I, if I call my, a man unrighteous for hatred, I thus call myself unrighteous. If I call a man unrighteous for lying, I thus call myself unrighteous. I can't have it both ways. 
And we love, we humans love to have it both ways, don't we? We humans love to look out at others and see all of their flaws while ignoring our own. Even when oftentimes they're the same flaws. I marvel at this in the jail setting every week. I marvel at the people that come in and, and, and look at everyone else in the jail and see all of their flaws and forget that they're sitting in there too. Everyone else is sitting in jail, but, but they forget that they are. They're there too. They, they, they have the charges next to their name too. This is common. This is human. But God is no respecter of persons. God does not give me a pass on my unrighteousness because I know the law. God does not give me a pass on my unrighteousness because I attempt to keep the law. God does not give me a pass on my unrighteousness because I have disciplined my life in such a way that I am not overtly doing things that would be morally unfounded or morally uh, uh, unpleasant. Because in my heart, I've still got a major problem because every time I fall outside the boundaries of that discipline, I have a major problem. I am just as unrighteous. I've, I've got my own problems. And when I harden my heart to this reality, I simply store up for myself more wrath for the day of wrath. This truth then rolls over into a reality. If God is no respecter of persons, if whether I, I regard the law or don't regard the law, I have breached the law and so am thus under condemnation, then that condemnation is universal, isn't it? This is the argument. We go from the failure of self-righteousness in chapter 2 to in Romans chapter 3, universal condemnation and the law's failure. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. We skip to verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. I'll pause here for a moment. So what Paul is saying, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Why? Because there's not a person on this earth that can keep it. There's not a person on this earth that can keep the law. Every time the law points I, I point my finger saying, you have breached the law, so too have I. Therefore, by the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. Verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be um, a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. I, I love that last verse. I, I quote it quite often, so you're familiar with that one. There is none righteous, Paul says. No, not one. He's quoting here from Psalm 14, verse 3. He's quoting from Psalm 53, verse 3, both of which say the same thing, that there is none righteous, no, not one. And if there is none righteous, and if God is no respecter of persons, and if the law is the righteousness of God, right, if the law is a reflection of the righteousness of God, so that the man that keeps that law will live, and yet no man keeps the law, then we've got a real problem. We've got a real 
problem. And that means that every man is condemned. Universal condemnation. And while that sounds like a bad thing, it's actually an incredibly wonderful thing. Because that means the playing field has been leveled. Why is it so important that the playing field has been leveled? Because if it, it, we see in life all the time, there's no real such thing as a, as a level playing field, is there? We all have different families. We all have different talents. We all have different intelligence levels. Uh, we all have different capabilities. Uh, you know, some guy wins the genetic lottery. He's really good at football. He becomes a millionaire, right? The playing field is not always level, but religiously, spiritually, not religiously, spiritually, God, in this decree, through the reality that no man could keep the law... This is the, the beauty of the design of God establishing this law that he knew no man could keep. It's a reflection of his character, so he wouldn't establish a law he could keep because then it would be a man thing, not a God thing, right? But in establishing this law, he proved without a shadow of a doubt that no man is righteous. Thus, every man is condemned. And once every man is condemned, once that playing field is level, once it has nothing to do with, once we understand it has nothing to do with what you could do or I can do with your advantages or my advantages in life, physically, emotionally, academically, and it has everything to do with God, then the grounds of universal condemnation lay the foundation for universal salvation. Let me clarify what I mean there. Not that every man will be saved, but that every man can be saved. Right? If there was any merit to God's system, then certain people would have an advantage over other. But God has demerited everyone so that he might have mercy upon all. All are under sin. No man can, by any human effort or effect, become acceptable to God. The law never has, never will change any of these realities. The law made no man righteous, has never made one man in the history of this earth righteous, because no man ever kept it, save the God-man. To this end, Romans 3 tells us, Jesus did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus became the satisfaction of God's wrath. Jesus satisfied the law on our behalf because you couldn't satisfy it and I couldn't satisfy it. Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, and he satisfied the law on our behalf so that God could be two things, both just because God has to punish sin or else he's not God, and he could simultaneously justify those that come unto him, not through the law, but by faith. In Jesus Christ. So Paul would say in Galatians 3.22, the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. All are concluded under sin that anybody who believes, regardless of where you live in the world, male or female, Jew or Gentile, uh, bond or free, regardless, you can be saved. You don't have to have money. You don't have to have connections. You don't have to have talent. You just have to believe. Universal leveling so that all might be saved. The law was insufficient. Man it was universally condemned through an understanding that the law was higher than any man could keep. 
the playing field was leveled so that the promise of faith by Jesus Christ might be given. No requirement, no effort, no merit, no capacity, only faith. A reflection of two things. First, the wholesale failure of the law to be able to justify a man, not because the law was bad, but because man is sinful. And second, the wholesale grace of God through Jesus Christ. And that is what we find as we continue in Romans 4 and 5. First, by establishing that this is not something that's new just for the church. That this has actually always been the case. Don't believe those that said that, don't believe those that say that the Jews were saved by belief and the law and that we are saved by belief alone. Don't believe those that say that there are any number of different gospels for any number of different peoples. Paul says, Romans chapter 4, verse 1, What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scriptures? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Abraham, like all men throughout history, have been justified in the eyes of God by faith alone. That's what Genesis 15, 6 tells us. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. If Abraham's righteousness was established by anything he had done, then he earned it. Then God owed him salvation. Then God owed him justification. Then God was indebted to Abraham. But this isn't what the Bible says happened. This has never happened. No man has ever put God in his debt unto salvation. No man... uh, Yes, I want to make sure I, I said that right. No man has ever or could ever earn righteousness. Not Abraham, before the law. Of course, Abraham was pre-law, right? But then he goes on to say in chapter 4, David, verse 6, even David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Saying, as he quotes Psalm 32, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So we have a pre-law example, Abraham. Abraham was saved by faith without the works of the law. Then Paul says, by the way, David was too. David was under the law and yet he acknowledges that the only hope that he has is that God will not impute his sin to him because he is not righteous. So we have the law, or pre-law, Then we have the law as well. And then Paul goes on to say in Romans 4, 14 through 16, For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. The law is what condemns. Now, it doesn't mean people don't sin if they don't know the law. But the idea is that where there is no no law established, if there's no law on the books, I can't be charged with a crime. It may be that today I can do something, tomorrow a law is put on the books, and the next day I go to jail for something that two days ago I I wouldn't have gone to jail for. Because now a law is on the books. And this can be frustrating, right? Yesterday it wasn't illegal, today it is illegal. What's that all about? But that's, that's, that's how the law works. The fact that there is a law tells us that there is righteousness and unrighteousness. The law worketh wrath. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end 
the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, the Jews, but that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Skipping to verse 20. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Abraham's righteousness was not earned, it was imputed. David's righteousness was not earned, it was imputed. Our righteousness is not earned, it is imputed. And if I, in any way, shape, or form, seek to impose a standard and earning a merit system onto justification, I make faith void. I frustrate the grace of God. Christ's death is in vain. In my mind, not not in reality, right? It's in vain to me. And so having all of these evidences at hand that Paul has just laid forth, we read Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Go to the beginning of your Bible, go to the end of your Bible, go anywhere in between, look to Adam and Eve, look to Abraham, look to David, look to the cross, look to the church. It doesn't matter where you look in the Bible or where you look in history, we find that men cannot justify themselves in the eyes of God and that thus we are all condemned before God, thus we are universally leveled, we are all in the same playing field, and thus the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is sufficient to justify anyone who will come to him by faith. Echoing Paul's conclusion back in chapter 3, verse 28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. And the rest of our lives under imputed righteousness is grace in which we stand. So I take you back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, as we close this morning. Paul says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. That word meaning to set aside, to discount, to disesteem, to neutralize. I don't make faith void, as he says it in Romans chapter 4. If righteousness has come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Christ's death means nothing if the law can establish righteousness. If the law, if my effort, my merit under the law establishes my righteousness before God, then grace doesn't matter anymore. Because that's the whole point of Jesus dying, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He hath made him to be sin for me, for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In him. Not in us, but in him. Not in the law, but in him. And if I seek to this philosophy in any way that I can find justification through the law then I am teaching either by commission or by omission that Christ's death did not matter. It was not sufficient. And God forbid that we should ever do such a thing. We know that grace reigns supreme. To this end, the law cannot establish righteousness. Not under justification and as we'll walk through Paul's teaching next week, nor unto sanctification. So then we have a question that we ask today. Have we been frustrating the grace of God? Have we muddied the waters? Maybe you have accepted uh, uh, salvation by grace through faith, but then some doctrine has, 
has muddied the waters as it relates to how you express it to others. Uh, maybe you have never fully stepped into this salvation by grace alone and you've always been hanging on to some element of self-righteousness, some element of worth, some element of merit. Do you understand that they just cannot coexist? Jesus' death on the cross cannot coexist with your merit. Jesus' death on the cross cannot coexist with your righteousness. Jesus' death on the cross cannot coexist with your efforts. They are mutually exclusive. If you have one, you don't have the other. You can't have the other. Have you muddied those waters? Have you admitted in your mind any degree of merit or effort or worthiness into your understanding of salvation? Now again, next week, not next week, the week after, we'll start talking through how this relates. Most of us are believers. We'll start talking through that. But today, we speak toward this, this element of this doctrine. The Christian's relationship to the law as it relates to justification is nil save that the law served to condemn you, to place you on that level playing field by which the grace of God could be shined into your heart. Now, there are any number of doctrinal hills within the scope and context of the Christian life and practice upon which we don't need to die. Someone comes up to you and they say something and you, you, that's not what you believe. Maybe we talk about eschatology or we talk about ecclesiology or whatever it is and and while there's some differences there and you have good reasons good solid reasons why you believe what you believe it's probably not a hill to die on any number of teachings in christian doctrine which will allow some measure of wiggle room especially accounting for spiritual immaturity and growth but this is not one of those this is a hill to die on If someone believes that there is merit in salvation, if someone believes that there is effort in salvation, if someone believes that that, that there is any sort of self-righteousness related to salvation, that is is a hill to die on. The supremacy of grace in the Christian life is a hill to die on. The insufficiency of the law to accomplish or establish justification in the sight of God in any way, that is a hill to die on. This is not a place where we can give ignorant Christians a pass. This is not a doctrine where we can allow wiggle room. This doctrine, if left unchecked, even in kernel form, seeds sown in some infant form grows into a denial of grace, a denial of the power and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. If there is even that kernel of this self-sufficiency in the gospel, then it, it competes directly with the supremacy of Jesus Christ, with his sufficient atoning death on the cross. This is a direct competition. They cannot coexist. And if we lose the gospel, if we lose that reality of Jesus Christ by grace through faith alone and the finished work of Jesus Christ alone, we have lost everything. So may I encourage you that as we continue to walk through this series, and this is, this is the easy message for me. This is the one that, that again, this is the hill that, that, that I can die on. I stand on this. I'm not going to get a lot of people calling me in the week and saying, Pastor, I'm really struggling with what you said on Sunday. That'll come over the next four weeks. <laughs> but I don't want that reality to lessen the importance of what we're talking about. Because this is the hill to die on. This is the one that we must stand with all of our might upon and say, no, 
Salvation has no merit involved, no effort involved, no work involved, no self-righteousness involved. You cannot earn it. You cannot be worthy of it. You cannot buy it. It's, it, 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 and, it and if you can, then Jesus Christ, is, is, his death is, is in vain. And so let's establish our hearts in that reality as it relates to the law this week as we transition to speaking more toward that area of how we live relating to the law as Christians in the weeks to come. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net. 